that day, 150 years ago, came and went quietly. Those who met in that humble farmhouse to organize the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were not, indeed they were not, the prominent men of their day. Only a few, and they of most humble prospect, were party to it. It was as Paul had told the Corinthians, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound those which are mighty. This sacred event, witnessed by those few, had been preceded by marvelous spiritual manifestations. In preparation for it, the Father and the Son had appeared to one of them. He had been called as the prophet. Angelic messengers had instructed them. The principle of revelation, thought to have concluded in centuries past, was demonstrated to be ongoing. The Book of Mormon had been published and its pages carried a testimony of the prophet Moroni that angels have not ceased to appear unto the children of men, nor will they, so long as time shall last, or earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face thereof to be saved. These humble men from among the common folks of that day were to become apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, as surely as Peter the fisherman and the other common men had been made apostles in ancient times. And so the angels came, a continuation of them, to teach these men, to confer the priesthood and authority upon them, to deliver keys to them. For these were things that men could not assume. They could not take them to themselves. And above all, the Lord himself appeared and reappeared. He said that the fullness of my gospel might be proclaimed by the weak and the simple to the ends of the world. Those days of beginning were not so far away as we sometimes think. There sits behind me on the stand Elder Legrand Richards of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He remembers personally some of those who helped open this work. He attended the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple and remembers President Wilfred Woodruff very clearly. He heard him speak on several occasions. Yesterday, Elder Faust mentioned the incident where Wilfred Woodruff, leading a group of immigrants, was inspired not to take an ill-fated boat. Brother Richards heard Brother Woodruff give that sermon and name a number in the audience and say to them, If I had not followed that prompting, you would not be here today. President Woodruff was only two years younger than the Prophet Joseph Smith, and he'd been an apostle for five years when the Prophet was martyred. Hands we have touched have touched the hands that shaped the beginning of this dispensation. Some things have not changed very much over the years. Some things have not changed at all. This work has been brought through 150 years 
by ordinary men and women and children across the world. The rank and file of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, present and past, who now number in the millions and have each carried apart, lives are shaped through the influence of the obscure and faithful members who carry the spirit of the gospel. When once I tried to thank a great teacher and patriarch, President William E. Barrett, he quickly passed the credit back to one who had taught him. An old convert from Norway was called to teach a group of mischievous, ironic priesthood boys. They were greatly amused by his broken English, but somehow the Spirit polished his words, and soon the boys responded. And I've heard Brother Barrett say more than once, we could warm our hands by the fire of his faith. President Heber J. Grants once heard uh, Bishop Millen Atwood preach a sermon in the 13th Ward. I was studying grammar at the time, he said, and he made some grammatical errors in his talk. I wrote down his first sentence, smiled to myself, and said, I'm going to get enough material to last me for the entire winter in my grammar class. We had to take four sentences a week that were not grammatically correct and together with the corrections. But I did not write anything more after that first sentence, not a word. And when Millinat Wood had stopped preaching, tears were rolling down my cheeks, tears of gratitude and thanksgiving that welled up into my eyes because of the marvelous testimony that that man bore of the divine mission of Joseph Smith, the prophet of God. He continued, <clears throat> although it is 65 years or more now since I listened to that sermon, it is just as vivid today, and the sensations and feelings that I had are just as fixed with me as the day when I heard it. The one thing above all others that has impressed me has been the spirit of inspiration of the living God that an individual has when proclaiming the gospel and not the language. I have endeavored from that day to this to judge men and women by the spirit they have. For I have learned absolutely that it is the Spirit that giveth life and understanding, and not the letter. The letter killeth. Whenever we seek for true testimony, we come finally to the ordinary men and women and children. Let me quote from the diary of a Joseph Millet, a little-known missionary of an earlier time. Called on a mission to Canada, he went alone and on foot, and in Canada during the wintertime, he said, I felt my weakness, a poor, ill-clothed, ignorant boy in my teens, thousands of miles from home among strangers. The promise in my blessing and the encouraging words of President Young to me, with the faith that I had in the gospel, kept me up. Many times I would turn into the woods in some desolate place with a heart full, wet eyes, to call on my Master for strength and aid. I believed the gospel of Christ. I had never preached it. I knew not where to find it in the scriptures. That didn't matter so much, 
for I had to give my Bible to the boatman at Digby for passage across the Sound. Years later, Joseph Millet, with his large family, was suffering through very, very difficult times. He wrote this in his journal. One of my children came in and said that Newton Hall's folks was out of bread, had none that day. I divided our flour in a sack to send up to Brother Hall. Just then, Brother Hall came. Says I, Brother Hall, are you out of flour? Brother Millet, we have none. Well, Brother Hall, there is some in that sack I have divided and was going to send it to you. Your children told mine that you was out. Brother Hall began to cry. He said he had tried others, but could not get any. He went to the cedars and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him to go to Joseph Millet. Well, Brother Hall, you needn't bring this back. If the Lord sent you for it, you don't owe me for it. That night, <clears throat> Joseph Millet recorded this remarkable sentence in his journal. You can't tell me how good it made me feel to know that the Lord knew that there was even such a person as Joseph Millet. The Lord knew Joseph Millet, and he knows all those men and women like him, and they are many. Their lives are the lives most worth recording. This rank and file of the Church, 150 years of them, have brought the truth to this generation and planted it where it is most likely to bear harvest, in the hearts of ordinary people. When President Kimball first came here as a member of the Twelve, he was asked to sit for a portrait. Those of us who know him well know how those hours of sitting still must have bothered him. To keep from daydreaming, the painter one day asked an abrupt question. Brother Kimball, have you ever been to heaven? His answer seemed to be a shock as he said without hesitation, Why, yes, certainly. I had a glimpse of heaven just before coming to your studio. He then told of an experience in the temple where he had performed a marriage. As the su subdued congratulations were extended, a happy father offered his hand and said, Brother Kimball, my wife and I are common people, and we've never been successful, but we are immensely proud of our family. This is the last of our eight children to come to this holy house for temple marriage. They, with their companions, are here to participate in this, the marriage of the youngest. As I looked at his calloused hands, Brother Kimball said, in his rough exterior, I thought to myself, here is a real son of God fulfilling his destiny. President J. Reuben Clark told of pioneer members of the Church in these words, Day after day, they of the last wagon pressed forward, worn and tired, footsore, sometimes almost disheartened, borne up by their faith that God loved them, that the restored gospel was true, and that the Lord led and directed the brethren out in front. He then told of a morning 
when from out the last wagon floated the cry of a newborn babe. And mother love made a shrine, and father bowed in reverence before it. But the train must move on. So out into the dust and the dirt, the last wagon moved again. Who will dare to say that angels did not cluster round and guard her and ease her rude bed, for she had given another choice spirit its mortal body? Who would dare to say that angels do not now attend the rank and file of the Church? who answer the calls to the mission fields, teach the classes, pay their tithes and offerings, seek for the records of their forebears, work in the temples, raise their children in faith, and have brought this work through 150 years. There comes a witness also from some who have stumbled and fallen, but have struggled back and have found the sweet, forgiving, cleansing influence of repentance. They now stand approved of the Lord, clean before him. His Spirit has returned to them, and they are guided by it. And without reviewing the hard lessons of the past, they guide others to that Spirit. Who would dare to say that the day of miracles has ceased? Those things have not changed in 150 years, not changed at all. For the power and inspiration of the Almighty rested upon this people today as surely as it did in those days of beginning. It is by faith that miracles are wrought. It is by faith that angels appear and minister unto men. Wherefore, if these things have ceased, Woe be unto the children of men, for it is because of unbelief. The prophet Moroni taught that angelic messengers would accomplish their work, quote, by declaring the word of Christ unto the chosen vessels of the Lord, that they may bear testimony of him. And by so doing, the Lord God prepareth the way that the residue of men may have faith in Christ, that the Holy Ghost may have place in their hearts, there has come these last several years a succession of announcements that show our day to be a day of intense revelation, equal perhaps only in those days of beginning, 150 years ago. But then, as now, the world did not believe. They say that ordinary men are not inspired, that there are no prophets, no apostles, that angels do not minister unto men, not to ordinary men. That doubt and disbelief has not changed. But now, as then, their disbelief cannot change the truth. We lay no claim to being apostles of the world but of the Lord Jesus Christ. The test is not whether men will believe, but whether the Lord has called us, and of that there is no doubt. We do not talk 
of those sacred interviews that qualify the servants of the Lord to bear special witness of Him, for we have been commanded not to do so. But we are free, indeed we are obliged, to bear that solemn special witness. But that witness, the testimony of this work, is not reserved to those few of us who lead the Church. In proper order, that witness comes to men and women and children all over the world. Across the world, the ordinary members of the Church, who might be described as obscure, bear witness that they were guided to this Church by revelation and that they are guided in their service in it. Revelation that belongs to the prophet and president of the Church to speak on matters for the entire Church rests upon all who hold office, each within the limits of the calling. It rests upon parents who preside over families, and if we will live for it, it will rest upon each of us. Like all of my brethren, I too come from among the ordinary people of the Church. I am the 78th man to be accepted by ordination into the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in this dispensation. Compared to the others who have been called, I am nowhere near their equal save it be perhaps in the certainty of the witness we share. And I feel compelled on this 150th anniversary of the Church to certify to you that I know that the day of miracles has not ceased. I know that angels minister unto men. I am a witness to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, that he has a body of flesh and bone, that he knows those who are his servants here, and that he is known of them. I know that he directs this Church now as he established it then through a prophet of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. What a wonderful number that was. Aren't you thankful for such a marvelous Mormon youth choir? I am grateful. I thank them for the beautiful work they do. This anniversary of the Church is of great importance to the Latter-day Saints. One reason is that it allows us to see ourselves in perspective. It helps us to measure our growth. It shows us the direction in which we have come over the last 150 years and now points like a compass to the future. With the ancient scriptures in our hands and the teachings of the modern prophets constantly before us, we chart the course which the Lord expects us to follow. By restoration from heaven, we have received the everlasting gospel brought back to earth by angelic ministration as foretold by the prophets who saw our time. With it we were given the Book of Mormon, which is an amazing volume of ancient American prophetic writing. More than a million copies are published each year as we take it worldwide. Our missionary system has increased from about a dozen men in 1830 to an army of 30,000 today. 
Our membership doubles every 15 years. Our four million will soon be eight million. Our stakes and missions now exceed 1,300 in number in about 80 different nations. We have 12,000 local congregations in 46 languages. We operate hundreds of seminaries and institutes for the daily study of the gospel. We also have some elementary schools and colleges. Our great Brigham Young University is recognized in many lands for its superior accomplishments. Knowing that the glory of both God and man is intelligence, we advocate good education. We have a welfare program which is the envy of nations. We make an earnest effort to care for our own with no expense to taxpayers. For this purpose, we have hundreds of projects which not only provide the necessities of life for the needy among us, but employment also, including jobs for the handicapped. Our temple work moves forward magnificently. We are building additional temples in various parts of the world as we take the ordinances of salvation to more and more people. The service rendered in those holy structures exceeds anything ever known in the past. We take humble pride in the rapid growth, the marvelous accomplishments, and the stability of our people. By their fruits ye shall know them, the Savior taught. Our fruits bear testimony to our devotion to Almighty God, our firm commitment to carry on His modern ministry, and to the validity of the message which we bear. And what is our message? First and foremost, it is that God does live, that He is our eternal Father and our Creator. All human beings are His offspring. Knowing this, we accept the commandment of the Savior to perfect ourselves so that we may be like Him. Next, we affirm that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Christ. He who was born in Bethlehem on the first Christmas, he who answered the questions of doctors in the temple when but twelve years old, he who was baptized of John, he who walked the plains of Palestine preaching his gospel, healing many who were sick and raising some of the dead, he who was persecuted by the religious cults of the day, was condemned to the cross but who conquered death and the grave in a glorious resurrection on the third day afterward. He is the Savior of all mankind. He is the Redeemer of all flesh. He did arise from the grave. He is risen, as the angel said, in physical, corporeal reality. And He lives today Our modern prophets have seen him face to face and have talked with him. We know that he lives, and by his resurrection he will also give to each of us a victory over death, for we too shall be resurrected physically and literally 
we too shall live again. That is our testimony on this Easter day. We testify also that Christ has spoken again in our day, that he has raised up new prophets and through them has reestablished his church on earth as it was originally when he called Peter, James, and John, Thomas, Judas, and others into the ministry. The divine gospel was lost over the centuries. Human philosophies displaced revealed doctrine, and the holy priesthood was taken away. But now it is all restored. We testify that it is restored. Revelation again comes from heaven. Prophets once more walk among us, and the truth is offered freely to all who will listen. God's modern dispensation now shines as a brilliant ensign to the nations, just as the prophets foretold. But as it shines, opposition grows. As truth is spread abroad, deceit and dishonesty arise to oppose it. As virtue is taught by the servants of God, unchastity increases among the ungodly. Indeed, as the prophet Lehi said, there is an opposition in all things, and as truth manifests itself, the adversary seeks to strike it down. In a very real sense, it is a war, a hot war, a war between right and wrong, between the powers of heaven and the forces of Lucifer. The scriptures warn that the devil will make war with the saints of God, but he never can and he never will overcome them. He will attack them with all the wicked devices his pornographic mind can devise, but he never will stop God's work. This is not a war for territory or wealth. It is a contest for the eternal souls of men and women, boys and girls, the literal offspring of God, our Heavenly Father. Our forces are strong. We have had many glorious victories and will yet have more. Our task is to save all who will listen. God's work and glory are the same, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. We work together in partnership with him. But how many of us realize how serious this conflict is? Do we measure its effect upon our own family circles? Do we understand what the devil is trying to do to us? Do we recognize his evil emissaries for what they are when they openly assail us or when they seek deceitfully to seduce us quietly? Seduction is his greatest weapon. Do we realize that? I repeat, seduction is the greatest weapon of the devil. It is alluring. It falsely appears to be advantageous and desirable. He would have us think that bitter is sweet, that black is white, that sin is acceptable, that virtue is obsolete, archaic, and prudish. Because he revels in filth, he would tell us that to be clean is some naive concept of our grandmother's age, which does not apply in this enlightened day. He says that evil is good and that standards have been relaxed. 
Go your way, he says. Fear no consequences. Do your own thing. Have fun. Express your basest desires if you wish. Let yourselves go. That is his philosophy. Do we recognize it when it is flung at us by our angry foes or when it comes with a soft voice and a disarming smile? Do we truly recognize evil when we see it? Do we really know right from wrong? If we do not, then let us hasten to learn from our church leaders. They will tell us quickly and plainly. If we do know what is right, have we the courage to stand up for it, to defend virtue, to declare the validity of our faith, to oppose false teachings, and fight the unpopular battle? Have we the moral stamina to confront any and all opposition and thus preserve truth, uphold cleanliness, and defend the cause of God? The time has come when we must take a far more firm and positive stand than ever before. We must identify illicit sex, pornography, filthy speech, the use of liquor, tobacco, marijuana, and worse drugs as enemies of God and enemies to ourselves. We must see in all of them the fiery darts of the devil. We must bolster our spiritual fortifications, raise the shield which God has given us, and wield the sword of righteousness and faith as all God's servants should. We must ask ourselves anew the potent question, who's on the Lord's side? Who? And we must understand that right now is the time to show. We ask it fearlessly. Who's on the Lord's side? Who? We wage no common war, cope with no common foe. The enemy's awake. Who's on the Lord's side? Who? Our ensign to the world is floating proudly now. No coward bears our flag. Who's on the Lord's side? Who? Have you a precious child? Would you save his soul? Would you fight to protect him from immorality, pornography, liquor, tobacco, and drugs? Do you shield him from evil companions? How vigorously do you fight? Do you go all out for your child, or don't you love him that much? Would you try as hard to save him from sin as you would to save him from drowning or from fire? If not, why not? Is not sin our worst enemy? It can destroy both body and spirit. Are we not fighting for eternal life as well as for a peaceful mortal existence? Some young people are in trouble these days. Hundreds of thousands are not, of course, and are faithful and clean. But those who are casualties need help, and their greatest help should and must come from their own home circles. Shall we not then, as families, bend every effort to save our young ones? Shall we not fortify our homes to defend them? Shall not every parent rise to this emergency? 
Every father must waken to the responsibility which is his. Every mother must put her priorities where they belong. Is it too much to ask that parents deliberately and objectively teach their children the gospel truths which alone can save them from the carnage of Satan? Is it too much to ask all parents to live those truths themselves? Is it too much to set a proper example by our own righteous living? Is it too much to teach our children that it is better to die in defense of virtue than to lose it? Is it too much to live the word of wisdom ourselves and teach it to our little ones? Is it too much to teach them that violation of the word of wisdom can lead them into much worse sin? Is it too much to be honest ourselves and to teach our children to be honest? Is it too much to have daily family prayers? Is it too much to go with our children to our church meetings and observe a sacred Sabbath? Is it too much to hold family gatherings in our homes either before or after our chapel services on Sunday and thus further insulate our little ones against the sins of the day? Is it too much to hold a family home evening each Monday and there teach our family the value of a clean life? doing so by recreation as well as by precept? Is it too much to believe sufficiently in the Lord so that we will accept his word and really and truly obey him? Is it too much to remember that God has said that if we are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus, we shall lose the crown over the kingdom? Is it too much to keep in mind, and may we never forget, that if we receive the commandments with a doubtful heart and keep them with slothfulness, we shall be condemned. There is no reward for half-hearted obedience. We must become vigorous and enthusiastic about living our religion, for God commands that we serve him with all our heart, with all our might, with all our strength, and with the very best of our intelligence. With him there can be no halfway measures. We must be fully for him, or we may be classed with those who are against him. Then what shall we do? Put on the whole armor of God. That's what we are to do. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. As Paul further said, let us not be men pleasers, but be true servants of God, doing his will from the heart. For this I humbly pray in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters and friends, today we celebrate the 150th anniversary 
of the organization of the church. The church we, of which we speak is not a man-made organization. It is exactly what its name implies. Thus, said the Lord himself, shall my church be called in the last days, even the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Verily I say unto you, he continued, Arise and shine, that thy light may be a standard to the nations, and that the gathering together upon the land of Zion and upon her states may be for a defense and for a refuge from the storm and from wrath when it shall be poured out without mixture upon the whole earth. In the headnote of the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the prophet Joseph wrote, We obtained from him, Jesus Christ, the following by the spirit of prophecy and revelation, which not only gave us much information, but also pointed out to us the precise day upon which, according to his will and commandment, we should proceed to organize his church once more here upon the earth. And then he added, The Lord again attests the genuineness of the Book of Mormon. Since the Lord, as he specified the date on which his church was to be organized and attested again to the genuineness of the Book of Mormon, at the same time in the same revelation, I have concluded that as we observe the sesquicentennial anniversary of the organization of the church, it will be proper for us to review a few Book of Mormon teachings. There are many reasons why we should do so. To begin with, the Lord has put us under obligation to teach the Book of Mormon. To begin with, uh, to teach the Book of Mormon, he said that he sent Moroni to reveal it that through the mercy through his mercy, he had given the prophet Joseph power to translate it. See, uh, that it contains the truth and the word of God and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, and to the Jews also.
The Prophet Joseph Smith told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct <clears throat> of any book on earth and the keystone to our religion and that a man could get closer to the Lord through reading it than through any other book. And the keystone of our religion and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts and by any other book. Nephi tells us that the contents shall go from generation to generation as long as the earth shall stand. And the nations who shall possess them, the teachings of the Book of Mormon, shall be judged of them according to the words which are written. For me, there could be no more impelling reason for reading the Book of Mormon than this statement that we who have the Book of Mormon shall be judged by what is written in it. Moroni says that the very reason the book has been given to us is that we may know the decrees of God set forth therein and by obedience to them escape the calamities which are to follow disobedience. To the early saints, the Lord spoke rather sharply about remembering the Book of Mormon's teachings. Your minds in time past, he said to them, have been darkened because of unbelief and because you have treated lightly the things which you have received, with which vanity and unbelief have brought the whole church under condemnation. And this condemnation resteth upon the children of Zion, even all, and they shall remain under this condemnation until they repent and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon. That's in the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Prior to this, he had told them that the Book of Mormon and the Holy Scriptures are given of me for your instruction. On another occasion, he had said, the elders, priests, and teachers of this church shall teach the principles of my gospel, which are in the Book of Mormon. It is, of course, obvious that unless we read, study, and learn the principles which are in the Book of Mormon, we cannot comply with the direction to teach them. There's another reason why we should read the Book of Mormon. By doing so, we will fill and refresh our minds with a constant flow of that water which Jesus said would be in us a well of water springing up unto everlasting life.
we must obtain a continuing supply of this water if we are to resist evil and retain the blessings of being born again. The great overall struggle in the world today is as it has always been for the souls of men. Every soul is personally engaged in the struggle, and he makes his fight with what's in his mind. In the final analysis, the battleground is for each individual within himself. Inevitably, he gravitates toward the subjects of his thoughts. Ages ago, the wise man thus succinctly stated this great truth, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. If we would escape the lusts of the flesh and build for ourselves and our children great and noble characters, we must keep in our minds and in their minds true and righteous principles for our thoughts and their thoughts to dwell upon. We must not persist, permit our minds to become surfeited with the interests, things, and practices of the world about us. To do so is tantamount to adopting and going along with them. For the experience of the race sustains the conclusion on, of him who said that vice is a monster of such frightful mind as to be so, so vice is a monster of so frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen but seen too oft familiar with its face we first endure and then pity and then embrace if we would avoid adopting the evils of the world we must pursue a course which will daily feed our minds with and call them back to the things of the Spirit. I know of no better way to do this than by daily reading the Book of Mormon. In all dispensations, the Lord has counseled his people to keep in their minds and thoughts the truths he has revealed to them. To the early saints of this dispensation, he said, Let the solemnities of eternity rest upon your minds. This counsel followed his statement to the elders, Ye are not sent forth to be taught, but to teach the children of men the things which I have put into your hands by the power of my Spirit. And ye are to be taught from on high, instructing ancient Israel not to go after the gods of the people which were round about them. He said, Hear, O Israel, these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. And when thou 
walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And when, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Search the scriptures, scriptures said Jesus, to his carping critics, who being surfeited with the things of this world rejected him, in the scriptures they could, if they would, learn the truth about him and things of eternal life which he taught them. The psalmist thus recounts the rewards which follow knowing and meditating upon the words of God. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than mine enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgment, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are the words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every evil way. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's Psalms 119. I am persuaded, my brothers and sisters, that it is irrational to hope to escape the lusts of the world without substituting for them, as the subjects of our thoughts, the things of the Spirit. As I know that the things of the Spirit are taught with mighty power, in the Book of Mormon. I believe with all my heart, for example, that if our young people could come out of our homes thoroughly acquainted with the life of Nephi, imbued with the spirit of the, his courage and love of truth, they would choose the right when the choice is placed before them. How marvelous it would be if when they must make a decision, they would, there would flash into their minds from long and intimate association with them the words of Nephi, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, for I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the things which he hath commanded them. And if when the going gets rough and temptation to abandon the course of righteousness presses upon them, they would think of his plea to his wayward brothers. Let us be faithful, he said, in keeping the commandments of the Lord, 
For behold, he's mightier than all the earth. Then why not mightier than Laban and his fifty, yea, or his tens of thousands? If our young folks are traditioned in the teachings of the Book of Mormon, they will not only be inspired by the examples of Nephi, the 2,000 sons of Helaman, and other great Book of Mormon characters to choose the right, they will also be schooled in the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they will be able to know and understand what is right. From about every page of the Book of there will come to them a moving testimony that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Redeemer and Savior. This witness alone will be a sustaining anchor in, their, in every storm. In the Book of Mormon, they will find the plainest explanation of Christ's divine mission and his atonement to be found anywhere in our sacred scripture. They will be familiar with the great fundamental basic virtues. The Book of Mormon is full of instructions concerning them. They will have learned that to be carnally minded is death, and that to be spiritually minded is life eternal. They will know that the Lord God delights in chastity and virtue, which are most dear and precious above all things. They will know that a violation of these sacred principles is in the sight of God an abomination above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood and the denying of the Holy Ghost. They will have learned the folly of putting their trust in the learning of men or in the riches of the, this world. As a matter of fact, there is no fundamental virtue without which, about which they will not be taught, for in the Book of Mormon, as has already been said, is to be found the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I counsel you, my beloved brothers and sisters and friends everywhere, to make reading the Book of Mormon a few minutes each day a lifelong practice. All of us need the uninterrupted association with the Spirit of the Lord. We need to take the Holy Spirit for our constant guide that we be not deceived. I am persuaded by my own experience and that of my loved ones as well as by the statements of the Prophet Joseph Smith that one can get and keep closer to the Lord by reading the Book of Mormon than by reading any other book. Don't be content with what someone else tells you about what's in it. Bring, drink deeply from the divine fountain itself. I feel certain that if in our home parents will read from the Book of Mormon prayerfully and regularly, both by themselves and with their children, 
the spirit of that great book will come to permeate our homes and all who dwell therein. The spirit of reverence will increase. Mutual respect and consideration for each other will grow. The spirit of contention will depart. Friends, parents will counsel their children in greater love and wisdom. Children will be more responsive and submissive to the counsel of their parents. Righteousness will increase faith, hope, and charity, the pure love of Christ, will abound in our homes and lives, bringing in their wake peace, joy, and happiness. That we will seek these blessings through reading the Book of Mormon, I humbly pray and have leave my blessings with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.